Yes, hello, hello again. This is your host, CEO and creator, founder of the Cinema Draft Game. I am Eduardo Jackson. Welcome back to the Cinema Draft Pod. My apologies that we kind of unexpectedly took a week off. <laughs> uh, it was election day last time we were about to record, and in a very let's just say, uh, unfortunately momentous occasion, uh, time in our country's existence, we had an election which left me too depressed to function. So we are back uh, this week with uh, the theme from last week. Uh, I believe you'll enjoy this podcast because we'll be digging into uh, election movies later on. And anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I am, you know, very opinionated. I am political. I stayed in my profile. If you follow me, you know, you know what you're in for. You're in for politics, Seattle sports, very proud Morehouse man, and a little bit of talk about Bitcoin. So, <clears throat> so you know, I'm pretty sure you, you know where I stand on all this stuff. Uh, we don't necessarily need to bring politics into this podcast today, but um, uh, <laughs> We just couldn't do it last week, everybody. We just couldn't do it. But we're back. We're in Trump's America. We're still alive. Sun's still rising, setting some way, somehow. And we are here for another exciting week of gameplay, strategy breakdown later on in the shot list, and also discussing, of course, my favorite segments, which is what I'm watching. And just a reminder for people who may be new to the podcast, Cinema Draft is where daily fantasy sports meets the movies. But instead of drafting athletes from teams, you're drafting actors from movies. And how their movies perform at the North American box office is you earn points for your call sheet of actors to compete against others for fun and prizes. It is free to play, and our games run every Thursday at 10 p.m. Pacific time. Then we'll get a little bit more into the gameplay later. Uh, we, I am running a solo pod today, you know. I do not have a guest. We will have more interesting, exciting guests, some recurring guests and returning guests uh, in the future weeks ahead. But y'all get me. It is a lovely Wednesday morning, early. We're you know, knocking this out for you guys so you can get your shot list, strategy, tips, and news and notes and views you can use to make the winning Cinema Draft call sheet. But first, we're going to get into uh, what I'm watching because I am a voracious consumer of media. I'm always watching, seeing, or doing something related to the entertainment industry. And first thing I want to touch on that I am watching is a little show, a little show on Netflix called The Crown. This is basically the story of Queen Elizabeth II, I believe, um, when she's unexpectedly thrust into being monarch of the United Kingdom in her mid or early 20s in, in the 1950s and kind of seeing how she grows into that role over the course of 10 episodes on Netflix and the strain the strain it puts on her personal relationships with her family. She has a little sister whom she's really close with but has you know some other issues as far as uh, falling in love with someone who's not of royal blood or whatever and uh and also her husband who's now kind of like you know finding herself in the bill clinton role where you know he's riding shotgun to this extremely important not so much powerful because the monarch the monarchy in england is still a bit of a 
uh, of a figurehead, but there are all sorts of you know thousands of years old rules established around the monarchy, which makes it really hard to maneuver for anyone in a modern age, even back in the 50s and 60s. And it's it's really interesting seeing the strain of you know a pretty you know, a pretty assertive, prototypical masculine you know man with ideas of of, of masculinity and what it means to him being forced. You know, to be less than in society's views of his wife and how that carries over in and outside of their private chambers and to the press at large. And so I know a lot of it sounds like a whole bunch of first world problems, and it is. I mean, really, as an American, you know, it's kind of hard sometimes to wrap your head around a lot of the the issues that, you know, and then the minutia involved in between the monarchy and the British government. But it's interesting. It's, it's fascinating, actually, and it's got great music. Um, I forget who the oh uh, it's uh, the, the intro theme song was was scored by Hans Zimmer whom I have always said I want if when I die I want this dude his music playing at my funeral like he'll probably be dead before me because he's a little older than I am but you know I want you know, when I when I die at my funeral I want just like loops of of music from you know from all of Hans Zimmer's greatest stuff he's an amazing composer so he did the the, the opening theme song for the Crown and also he was consulted on and worked with a guy named Rupert Gregson, Ru Rupert Gregson Williams, I believe. Uh, and basically he, uh, he, I want to say he's the son of, uh, of a great composer, Harry Gregson Williams. I'm sure I'm getting all this wrong. Anyways, um, the music was, was phenomenal throughout the, throughout the whole, uh, whole series, because if you didn't quite get the gravity of what's going on. Oh, the music's gonna tell you. And not in an annoying beat you in the face type of way, but truly in a somewhat organic raising the stakes type of way. I always like to think that music in a good in a in a good piece of filmed entertainment, whether it's TV or, or movies, but particularly movies, music really has the ability to ratchet up the stakes and the emotions involved and to really deliver the impact and emotion of of a scene where where the words, you know, kind of you know, can only take you but so far. So, and and, and as for, and when it comes to the words, the, the whole series, every episode was written by the outstanding Peter Morgan. This is the guy who brought us uh, Frost Nixon, um, The Queen, and several other entertainments that are really, really, you know, British-centric, UK-centric. But I enjoy that. He, he really makes the aloof politics of the royal family and their tension with the, with the British government really accessible. But I, had, I do have to admit, you know, this is this is really the story about Queen Elizabeth, the the woman who plays her. I believe her name is Claire Foy, F O Y. She she's great, you know, she's awesome, you know. And but I really, really hate this queen. I mean, I mean, she's and and it's it's understandable because at some point, especially early on, she can be easily swayed by her advisors around her who are always trying to make her hew more towards tradition and everything. Whereas there's sometimes when she's, you know, really has like a mind of her own and she's really determined about something. But at the end, it seems like her advisors always get their way and it just doesn't smack of strong leadership. Now, thankfully the monarchy is largely symbolic. It's more of like a bit of like a, on par with, uh, ornamental secretary of state role where they just kind of go out and meet a lot of people from the world and kind of, you know, present the monarchy to the masses and stuff to the, to the world, you know, going to the various uh, uh, dominions within the United Kingdom. And, and, and she really has no real power, but as a symbol of the state, uh, you know, of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain, you know, they take on this, you know, immense, you know, 
responsibility. And I just get really annoyed that she's still always getting led around by men, tradition, and forces outside of herself. When really, as the queen, you know, within her sphere of influence, she really can just say no to stuff. So, or maybe that's the nature of British royalty. You know, that that tradition means everything to these people, and it's really been dominated by you know a cadre of old white people. But I, and maybe it's my American nature to hate it, but I just couldn't stand, you know. Re- big aspects of her personality that led her to be so easily led. So that's The Crown. That's one thing I've been watching. Or actually, I blew through it. I blew through it mostly in a weekend. It's really excellent. Check it out. It's on Netflix. I also saw Hacksaw Ridge. Yo, boy, Mel Gibson, he's back. <laughs> Mel Gibson directed this. You never know from all from most of the advertising because they kind of downplay it or they just say from the director of Braveheart, which is true. He directed Braveheart even before he you know, done said what he done said back then, which kind of got him ostracized in Hollywood for very good reason. But anyways, all that baggage aside, this is a legit war film. So the first hour is a lot of background and fluff. So basically, so for those who don't know, Hacksaw Ridge is the true story of a man named Desmond Doss back in World War II, I believe. That's right, World War II, uh, who who volunteers for for the service, volunteers to, for the army, despite his religious, uh, besides personal views being, you know, against nonviolence. He cannot touch a weapon, will not fire a gun. And so, of course, that gets him, you know, a lot of shit during basic training and for obvious reasons of his, 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 I was going to say teammates, but I guess his, um, his uh, people in his infantry company or what, what have you uh, were his fellow soldiers. There we go. His fellow soldiers give him a lot of crap about it, think he's untrustworthy, what, you know, what kind of guy doesn't, you know, you know, won't pick up a gun in defense of his country, stuff like that, but he's there to be a medic, and, and he gets thrown into the, into the thick of it in, uh, in, in the war in, in, in Asia, South Asia, and it goes down on this one uh, area called Hacksaw Ridge, where it was just a bloodbath, just a huge bloodbath, a huge cliff they had to scale with this big rope ladder and stuff, and then when you get on the other, um, on top of it, it's just like hell. Trenches, firing, cloud smoke, all that, you know, World War II stuff you've seen, and I have to admit, it was, it had some of the most terrifying World War II battle scenes in Saving Private Ryan. It really had, and I mean, it I mean, it's, it gets you into like the blood, the guts, the torn limbs. I mean, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, but I will say it's an amazing story, mostly because it's true. And Desmond Doss, uh, I'm not, I can't, I, I'm not sure if he's still alive, but they had, uh, they had archival footage. I, I'm not sure how long they've been working on this film, but they had like interviews with Desmond Doss, you know, up, up through the mid 2000s, where he described, you know, in in detail. You know the the bout you know one of the, the big battles at centerpiece of this movie what went down and what he actually said and happened and they were good enough to include that in the movie so it's one of those type of stories where where the truth almost seems stranger than fiction but because it's the truth it got made it is an excellent film uh, it, I'm not surprised that it's it's been steady you know uh, in its in its box office results it's the type of film that's gonna have legs uh, and it's gonna you know probably. Actually, that's a good question. What did it do last weekend? I believe last weekend it did another ten million. So it's got thirty-two million in in three weekends, and it's the type of movie that's gonna you know probably churn out eight, nine, ten million a week for like the next four or five weeks. It's a really excellent film. Check it out if you get a chance. Uh, what else am I watching? Mm-hmm. How to get away with murder. ABC show that 
it kind of gets lost in some of the Shondaland uh, excitement with, you know, Scandal being the centerpiece, Grey's Anatomy being on for 13 seasons. But How to Get Away with Murder in its third season, low-key is having its best season yet. I mean, so it, it's got this framing device. So, you know, for those who aren't aware of this of this show, this series, it's basically set in Philadelphia at a, at a, a law school where a law school professor also has a private practice as a defense attorney. And of course, you know, defense attorneys are the ones that are always, you know, being looked down upon because they defend criminals and, and, and murderers and things of that nature. But, you know, she elevates the high art in her defenses and being really creative. And of course it's TV. So there's a lot of stuff that's totally out of whack, but from the very first season, there's a, there's a central murder of, of, of uh of a missing of a missing young girl and that kind of spirals into you know a whole bunch of other stuff over the over the course of seasons where where all of her law students or well, not law not all of them but she has a, a select group of law students that shadow her it's about six individuals or whatever you know first year law students that at, in the first season she's manipulating them some in the second season they become kind of co-conspirators with her and this and here in this third season they've essentially turned on her. They don't trust her. You know, Annalise, uh, Annalise Keating, that's the name of the lead played by Viola Davis. The, the uh, Emmy, uh, Emmy, oh, excuse me, the Emmy, and I do believe she's got an Oscar, so she might be halfway to an EGOT. The Emmy and Oscar winning uh, actress, actor, uh, uh, Viola Davis, she, uh, she plays Annalise Keating, you know, with such strength and ferocity, but this season she's broken and she's an alcoholic. To, and she's in she's in a AA and rehab for for alcoholism. It was mostly actually a, a ploy to, to keep her job at the university. It was really smart, but she actually sees that she needs it. And, and to try to get away from alcohol, she's taking up binge eating, which I'm sure most of us can relate to. <laughs> and it, she's just a mess this season. But all the stuff swirling around her, the big central uh, conspiracy, the big central mystery this this season starts with a framing device at the very first episode of seeing Annalise's house burning down and then them wheeling someone out under a sheet who's dead. And so the whole central mystery is who's under the sheet? You know, who is it that we've known? What, who, which one of these characters we've come to know and love the last two and a half seasons is under this sheet? And so, I mean, I give props to ABC Marketing for trying. They have, have this whole hashtag, hashtag who's under the sheet. That isn't really taking off like I think they wanted to, but you know, each week, you know, they what they've done with each episode is that they've eliminated one suspect or one person who could be under the sheet each week. So, so with this framing device, they have they have like the whatever the the, the the backstory to the fire at the house, which they'll have, you know, whatever the central defense or the central case or or thing about that episode is, and then the framing story around it, which flashes forward to the burning house, the aftermath, being in the hospital, taking care of wounds, finding out who's alive, finding out who's turning on who. And it's just been really, 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 really good stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just it's got more backstory for some more fan favorites like Michaela, played by Aja Naomi King, uh, Laurel, played by Carla Souza, Laura falling for Wes, the lovable everyman Wes, them hooking up. And then, of course, Annalise having an affair with food, going to AA. It's just all good stuff. Really, really good stuff. So check it out this season. It's, it's doing some of its best stuff yet. Shout out, if she ever hears it someday, uh, my girl, uh, Erica, Erica Green Swafford. Uh, an old acquaintance of mine uh, back in LA. She used to work for, I believe, uh, Oprah's Oxygen Channel, and now she's been a staff writer on there. And I think now uh, one of the co-producers on How to Get Away with Murder. So big shouts to Erica. 
Green Swafford. Keep up the good work, girl. Love what you're doing. Uh, last one I want to share with you is recent revelations called Good Behavior. It's on TBS. It stars Michelle Dockery as a con woman fresh out of prison who's trying to do good. She's trying to go straight. She's on parole. Um, she she loses her job at this uh, crappy diner. Um, she has kind of klepto tendencies, like stealing stuff from people. Works these you know, these con jobs at like a hotel with uh, uh with their front desk manager gives her like a universal key. So she goes into people's you know rooms, just steal shit. It's just pretty. It's, it's pretty raw and, and and bad. She gets she's about to get caught in the process of stealing some stuff. So she hides in the closet and she overhears this uh, other. I don't, I guess not a con man. He's got con man tendencies, but basically she overhears. Uh, the details between a man, uh, between a man and this this husband uh, of of a woman who he wants to have killed. He wants to have his wife killed, and this man who's talking to him is basically a paid assassin. And so she overhears the details of this hit job go out. It's happening like the next day or whatever. So she, you know, basically ingratiates. So basically, when she's able to escape out of the room while while the assassin falls asleep. And after the after the husband's left and has paid this guy, you know, for the job, she basically, you know, has this whole elaborate, you know, plan to to do good, to be on her on her best behaviors, on on good behavior, to to seduce the guy, uh, find out the details of this hit, and warn the wife. And it all goes awry, of course. And in the end of the pilot episode, not to you know, spoiler alert, but the end of the pilot episode, and it's a two, and it's a two episode pilot, so I'm not really spoiling too much. Um, that they played last night on Tuesday night. Uh, basically, she ends up uh, she she ends up trying to stop the, the the murder. It doesn't go well, but she ends up being capt captured or enthralled to uh, this guy, you know, this sexy assassin guy with a Spanish accent or whatever. Basically, becoming uh indebted in, i would say it's indebted because you think like she wants to be indebted to but basically he he makes her work off uh, off her debt he basically he basically you know for lack of a better word and it's terrible especially in these times he basically kind of owns her like she's basically trapped in the situation where he where she's going to work for him it's a very interesting weird unique concept or setup uh she's and what's really compelling is the performance of michelle dockery who i found out is a, is a british accent act at not accent she has a she has a british accent in real life because she's a british action actress she's british she's from great britain i guess her claim to fame is downton abbey sorry you missed me with that one not a, not a downton abbey person maybe i'll get there someday on netflix when I have all this free time, which never exists, but but basically she is really compelling because her character is suicidal. She she has a black preteen kid that she has been legally barred from from seeing or raising. There's actually a restraining order against her for her own kid. Her her kid lives with with her mother, who's kind of white trashy and and hates her. So her mother hates her. She's got a kid she who doesn't really know her. She's been in jail. She's out. She's suicidal. Suicidal. She's rated. She's addicted to. She's addicted to drugs. Uh, addicted to booze. And she, it's just so compellingly, sh you know, thrillingly shot. And sh it's just so messy. It's really compelling. I'm. I'm in. Two episodes in so far, and I am in. So that basically that's it. Uh, and you know, tell me what y'all are watching. If you you know, send us some emails. Send us uh, emails at podcast cinemadraft at gmail.com and let me know what what are you guys watching I'm, I'm interested we'll we'll talk about some on on air next week in our next podcast i'm very interested to see what y'all are watching out there 
in the great internet divide, uh, internet uh, expanse. So it is money time. It is our theme for the podcast this week. We are we are picking five election movies, and since it's just me today, I guess we will kind of uh, go in in uh, ascending order from from lowest to highest as far as where these kind of rate for for me. And we're gonna try to keep it a little interesting. I'm gonna try to to invoke a little screen share so you can so you can see some details on these. And the first election movie we're covering, <clears throat> uh, and basically these are election themed movies. Um, I think one might deviate a little bit. I think I got one a little bit later that's more presidential theme, but still there's campaigning involved a little bit. So I like it. I enjoy it. Um, but we're going to start off with, uh, but when it comes to election theme movies, oh, and let's give a little clap for, for uh, our subject this week. Because after that shit show of, of a campaign and election process, who doesn't want to talk more election? Who doesn't want to talk more election movies? Who doesn't want to escape with me? Whether you want to or not, you're escaping with me this week. We're going to we're cover five, my five, my top five election movies. And so we are going to start, we're going to start here with uh, an old, a somewhat oldie but goodie, and we are going with Bullworth. Bullworth is fascinating, and we'll just read the description, you know, the, the log line. It's basically a suicidally disillusioned liberal politician puts a contract out on himself takes the opportunity to be bluntly honest with his voters by affecting the rhythms and speech of hip-hop, music, and culture. Now, it's not... It's a crazy parody. It's probably a little antiquated for... I mean, considering this happened almost 20 years ago, it's definitely not PC. It probably couldn't hold up today. But it is pretty funny, and it's got a lot of stuff going for it. It's got a young Halle Berry. It's... It is really a politically. Uh, it's got it's it's got Warren Beatty acting. I mean, when was the last time we seen Warren Beatty act? Matter of fact, let's take a look. When is when was the last time we saw Warren Beatty do something? I mean, he, I mean, he's he's got, he's got money. He's paid. Okay, here he so he's got a movie coming out. He's got a movie coming out called Rules Don't Apply. But look at this. Look at this filmography. Dude never works because he made his money early. Back in the 50s, in the 60s, he was getting it. He was a sex icon. He's married to one of the great actresses of our time, Annette Benning. He's made, he's he's straight paid. He's good. Bugsy, Dick Tracy. Well, forgive him for Ishtar. You know, Heaven Can Wait, like this dude was getting money for decades. So he doesn't have to work if you don't want to. So the last time we saw him, I guess, essentially was was 15 years ago at Town & Country, which was a pretty kind of bad movie. But big shouts, I think, to Nancy. I think that might have been a Nancy Meyer film. Anyways, we're getting sidetracked. Uh, so he's coming back, he's coming back uh, actually in a couple weeks or a week or so, and rules don't apply, which is a bit of a throwback to Hollywood or whatever. But he doesn't work unless he wants to. Big shouts to him. I mean, he's an older dude. He's I guess he's 80 now. 1937, that's... I'm bad at math. That sounds like... 80. All right. <clears throat> Anyways, so this is Warren. This is a younger Warren Beatty. I guess a, a 60 year old Warren Beatty. He's playing a politician, suicidal. He's crazy, and he finds truth through music. And the music just so happens to be rap. Now, <laughs> using a now being a politically incorrect satire and using hip hop as truth serum to our fucked up electoral politics probably does sound about right to this to this uh, point in time. But man. 
uh, it, it does feel pretty damn accurate right about now, and I'm pretty sure a lot of us will be escaping to some of our our musical comfort food. I mean, I, I think it, it's, I mean, it was coincidental, but thank goodness, you know, Tribe Called Quest came out with a new album. I have yet to dive into it. I have it. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, but, you know, we, we're all going to kind of retreat to our to our artistic corners to find comfort through entertainment, and Bullworth was definitely that type of movie. I guess I'm giving away a little bit in advance what some of my movies are going to be if you're watching this on the video. But the next movie, for those listening to the podcast, of my top five election movies. My next movie is Primary Colors. You know, I, we, we gotta give it up. <laughs> Primary Colors. This might be a little too further down the list, but this is I mean, this is a, a great movie. The logline is, <laughs> the, the great logline on IMDB says, a man joins the political campaign of a smooth operator candidate for president of the USA. And let's be real. It's a thinly veiled take on the Clinton ascendancy, and it's just brilliant. It's seen through the eyes of an idealistic young black uh, campaign aide played by, I believe, British actor. There they go again. These Brits, brilliantly playing Americans, named Adrian uh, Adrian Lester, plays a dude named Henry Burton. Yeah, and he's and we see it as he's kind of taken up in a whirlwind. He he interviews for a job and basically gets the job on the spot. It's kind of whirled onto the is just taken immediately onto the campaign. Of a of a '90s political of a of a '90s uh, a Southern politician, which is a thinly veiled take on Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton. I mean, Mike. I mean, look. I mean, look at some of these these look look at some of these images, right? Look at some of these. I mean, not that one. What are we? Well, where are the the stills? Okay, here we go. I mean, if that doesn't speak Bubba and Hillary, I don't know what does. For those listening to podcasts, I'm showing an image. Uh, uh, a, a set image or whatever from our publicity still from Primary Colors, 1998 movie starring John Travolta as you know the Bill Clinton stand-in and Emma Thompson as the Hillary Clinton stand-in. I believe their names in the movie were Governor Jack Stanton of a of an, of an unnamed Southern state and Susan Stanton as you know the the Hillary person. Uh, <laughs> and, and these and all these people, I swear, all these people are are based off of real life people. So you have Billy Bob Thornton playing Richard Jemmons, who is clearly, clearly a take on James Carville with the Southern accent, the, the no bullshit, you know, uh, uh, straight plain, uh, you know, speech, whatever, the, the, the deep Cajun accent is totally him. Um, and it's just, it's just really fun, you know, as you go through, uh, go through the movie, you know, trying to match up who in reality is whom as, as you see all these takes on these political operatives off the, I believe this was based off of um, of a novel, which was or is either it was either based off a novel or was based off of like a real account called Primary Colors. Um, I forget who wrote it. Uh, doesn't matter. Eh, it doesn't really matter. It was based off a book, a really popular book. It didn't do what it should have done when it came out. Like his opening weekend actually came out with twelve million in nineteen ninety eight dollars in, in in March March twentieth nineteen ninety eight, but it only grossed a total of thirty. Eight, almost 39 million so you'd think it would it's but i think it's had like like a low-key uh subculture run in on like cable tv on video whatever i mean you know you talk to anyone who loves politics or or or, or loves you know election or campaign themed movies and you're gonna hear primary colors uh in the discussion uh i mean and and, and, and just get back i think i didn't get sidetracked basically it's seen through the eyes of this young black campaign aide who as he's you know drawn into this whirlwind of 
of the Travolta Clinton stand-in campaign, his Hillary-esque wife, who's you know equally ambitious, and their complicated marriage of political convenience. And the writing is fantastic, and I love this movie. It is a hoot. I need to watch it again just on GP. That's general principle for you following at home. Next movie of my top five election movies is Street Fight. The IMDb logline is as thus. This documentary follows the 2002 mayoral campaign in Newark, New Jersey, in which the Cory Booker, uh, which Cory Booker attempted to unseat longtime Mayor Sharp James. It's a documentary. It is my. It was my first introduction to Cory Booker. I remember watching this when I lived uh, briefly in Atlanta on Netflix, and I was blown away. Like back in, I guess about a decade ago, something like that. About eight years ago, nine years ago. Uh, big, big shouts to Clay McNeil. If you're still playing the game, I saw you out there uh, a couple weeks ago. Appreciate your support. Old running mate out there in Atlanta. And yeah, it's um, it's something else, man. It's I mean, it's it's it is a political street fight. There are so many dirty tactics and, and things going on in that campaign. And it did introduce the world really to Cory Booker in an agnostic-esque um, as far as or, or I would say agnostic-esque, more like an ascetic, an ascetic like a, a monk-like figure as far as uh, how he conducted his life. And he may still conduct his life this way because th that dude was all about the struggle. Single bachelor, former uh, Stanford graduate, used to play on the Stanford football team. Um, and he just had, he lived in Newark, like in the city, like in the inner city. You know, he wasn't like behind gated communities or any of that stuff. He was in, down with the people. He wanted to be on the street, you know, talking to people, seeing how they lived, doing, figuring out how he could improve Newark or whatever. And he was just, he was just in it. He was down for the struggle. He was just really about that life. I mean, all he lived, breathed, slept, you know, politics and, and just, and, and really worked hard to, to, to beat Sharp James and Sharp wasn't having it. He was one of those. He, uh, so it's two black dudes fighting for the soul of a largely black city. Right. But Sharp James, just one of those old school cats who had a lot of political connections, a lot of influence and clout. And it was not shy about dirty tricks from, you know, stealing, you know, lawn signs and, and stuff to making up stories and rumors in the press. I mean, you know, it was actually more, I mean, today, seeing how this film came out in 2002, uh, and I think I watched it back in like 2008 or whatever. I mean, uh, it was, I guess it was more, oh no, I'm sorry. The, the Street Fight came out in 2005. So in the fall of the 2002 campaign. But, but seeing how, how I mean, it might've been shocking then after what we just went through with this election, it's probably not nearly as shocking. We've probably put up with more crap as, as a citizenry than anyone should probably have to go, go through. But at the time, this was a lot of the dirty tricks stuff that was being played out was pretty, pretty shocking. And it's pretty interesting take on, on, on even local politics. I mean, it's, it's, it's mayoral, but Newark's not a small city, you know, and, and Newark is, you know, not far from New York city. And so you have a lot of influences of major media uh, and local media going throughout that campaign. And it just really shows how nasty a business that politics is, not even can be, is. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. And I believe in this movie, Cory Booker lost this campaign, but he, I do believe he won the next one. And then the one after that, which, you know, was to go to Senate. And now Cory Booker has a national platform. And, and this movie really made America fall in love with Cory Booker. I mean, as a, at, from marketing side, because I do believe everything in life is marketing. Hashtag marketing. Uh, it's a great, it's it's a great campaign. The camp, that campaign, the campaign. It was, a, it must have been a great campaign piece for him, uh, and definitely got his 
his name out there, you know, on a national scale. So that is my third movie. The fourth movie on my list, I mean, and this is and this one is where it may not be so much an election campaign uh, campaign based movie, but it is a political movie, and it's called Dave. It is, it is uh, the one starring Kevin Klein as as a presidential imposture. The IMDb logline is to avoid a a potentially explosive scandal when the U.S. president goes into a coma, an affable temp agency owner with an uncanny resemblance is put in his place. And basically, so basically it's Kevin Klein playing two roles. He's playing the president who goes into a coma. And I guess he was one of those, like, he was one of those, uh, you know, he's not terribly likable, but he gets stuff done type presidents. And then, and he has uh, like a Hillary-esque type um, relationship with his wife, uh, where where you know at, at least at the time this was this came out in 1993, mind you. So so uh, and his wife is played by Sigourney Weaver, and so it's one of those type of things where it was a political marriage of convenience, right? Uh, Bill Mitchell's the name of the president. Ellen Mitchell's his wife, and and one of the iconic shots I remember from this movie, which I believe was directed by Gary Ross who's got a ton of credits to his name, including the first Hunger Games movies, Seabiscuit, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, there's a great shot of after like a big, there's like a presidential, oh, they, they, they arrive back on, on a, not Air Force One, what's the Marine One? That's the chopper that flies, that we see flying in the green chopper that flies in, lands on the South Lawn or whatever. And they get out, they do the waves to the public and stuff, you know, elbow, elbow, wrist, elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist. And, and then and when they turn wave one last time to the press and everybody's taking pictures with their hand, you know, holding hands in one hand, waving with the other hand, they, uh, <clears throat> they, they turn and then, and once the doors close, where they separate and their hands like, you know, unlink and they both go in totally opposite directions was a perfect example of how that relation was totally fractured beyond repair and so here you have dave whom the secret service tracks down and is like yo i mean the president's incapacitated we need you to act as the president because we got some really important stuff we're trying to push through congress right now so don't mess anything up oh i'm sorry though the writer was gary ross my bad the writer was gary ross it was directed by ivan reitman i mean and I mean, just to give you a quick example, and I believe we lost him. I, th- I think we lost him earlier this year, Ivan Reitman. Um, oh no, no, no! I'm st- oh, let me, you know, let me stop t- telling those lies. We lost Harold Ramis, who was in an Ivan Reitman film that we all know and loved, especially when I was a kid. A little film called Ghostbusters. I don't know. <laughs> you might have heard of it. Uh, Ivan Reitman directed that, and he produced a, a slew of movies too. His directorial credits. Um. Ooh, he did draft day. Oh goodness, that's not good. No strings attached. He's had he's had he's had some fallow periods lately. But he's had some good stuff. I swear to you, I promise you, he's had some good stuff over over his years. He did Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters two, uh, Legal Eagles. That was a fun movie back in the eighties. Uh, Twins, you know, Meatballs. I mean, the dude, dude's got dude, Stripes. He did Stripes. Forgot about that. So yeah, so so directed by Ivan Reitman. You know, he he's you know one one of, one of our national treasures and. Excellently, excellently played by Kevin Klein. You know, doing a dual role as the upbeat, optimistic Dave who comes in and, while impersonating the president, kind of you know imbues the sense of of optimism back into politics and the government. You know, and and I think a movie like that is really needed for our very divided, cynical times right now. Because I mean, basically, his his imposture, uh, you know, 
you know, take and taking over for an, impas- for an incapacitated president, as I believe the president is a coma. You know, just I mean, it's it's a really high concept type of film where it's like you know, this guy with a totally different worldview comes in and through his sense of optimism, whatever, helps get stuff done. Uh, there's a great scene in there with, where he calls in like the head of the budget or whatever, the head of the OMB or whatever. You know, he's like, we need to we need to balance the budget. How do we do it? And the guy's like, uh, we've never done it. He's like, well, I want to balance the budget. So how do we do it? So the guy comes in from OMB with like stacks, reams of like of you know of government documents describing what's in the national budget, and they just and 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 they just do like an all night or whatever, and somehow magically balance the budget. It's really hopeful and idealistic. And lovely. It never could have existed in this smartphone world, mind you. This was this did come out in 1993, and where everyone's got Snapchats and and Twitter, and everyone's got a camera on their phone. Ain't no way this could have existed today. But it's a great film nonetheless, and it brings promise and hope back to a cynical America. And of course, those of you watching the video, of which are like five, but those of you listening to the podcast, which they're a legion. Uh, if you you can only guess, of course, what is the only natural fit, the only, the only possible number one election film, and that is the American president. That it's a, on its own, it's just a great film because it's written by Aaron Sorkin, the goat. The God, the guy who did A Few Good Men, The Social Network, uh, Jobs, which is criminally underrated. A great, excellent script on Jobs. And this is this was a this is a 1995 movie starring Michael Douglas and Annette Bening, Warren Beatty's wife. Once again, keep getting those checks in that. And it's just elegant. It's great. It's a comedy drama about a widowed U.S. president and a lobbyist who fall in love. It's all above board, but politics is perception and sparks fly anyways. And it's just, I mean, it, it's just, it's one of those, it's a crowd pleaser. It's one of those that, one of those type of movies that they play, you know, sporadically on TBS or, 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 or a cable channel and it comes on. I mean, it's, it's one, it's one of those movies that doesn't, that doesn't get totally mangled by, uh, by standards and practice in when taking it to TV. There's not, not a lot of bleeping out or whatever. I believe it was PG-13 rated, if that. Yeah, PG-13. Uh, so you could take your take your family to see it. It's a it's about it's about a widow, you know, that widowed president by Martin by uh, not Martin Sheen, sorry. But <laughs> Martin Sheen is in there, mind you. Michael Douglas is the president, President Andrew Shepard, but Martin Sheen in getting ready for a future role as you know, on, on West Wing you know, as the as President jo- Josiah Bartlett, you know, Smooth Martin Sheen, auditioning as the chief of staff in this. He's his chief of staff, A.J. McInerney. Um, and it's just such a well-written film, well-executed, well-directed. Rob Reiner, you know, he's done everything. When Harry Met Sally, all that good stuff. It's just a really, really uh, elegant performance by Michael Douglas. Very smooth, great script, so much chemistry between you know Annette Benning and Michael Douglas. I really enjoy this film. I really do. If you haven't seen it, shame on you. It's been out for 20 years. Check it out. 22 years. Check it out. Uh, hopefully it's on Netflix or Hulu or somewhere. It is it, it's 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 a great film. I, I really enjoy it. A simple pleasure. And that is and that are is our and that are and there are my top five movies. Sorry, English degree, Morehouse, my bad English department. There are my top five movies, uh, top five election movies for this uh, post campaign season. <clears throat> yes, 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 yes. All right, so 
we are now into the cinema draft heavy portion of the podcast. And what is cinema draft for the newly initiated? It is the fantasy sports version of the movies. You draft 10 actors who are assigned a dollar value salary. You have 100K in your budget to try to fit all 10 of your actors in. No more, no less. You must have 10. We have three release types of movies. You have wide release, which, which have movies on 2,000 screens or more. You have limited release, which are on 501 to 1,999 screens. And you have platform release, movies that are on 500 screens or less. You must draft one actor from each of those movies and then fill out 10 actors total on your call sheet. You also have what is called the headliner bonus. Headliners are worth 40% more. So, for example, Suicide Squad earns $100 million and, Rob, then, and, one, and you get one point per million in wide release. Then Margot Robbie gets 100 points, while Will Smith, as a headliner, gets 140 points. See that 40% bonus there? There you go. Our game is free to play, and we have cash prizes this week. I do believe we have almost $200 in cash prizes this week. We are in open beta testing, definitely check us out at cinemadraft.co. And so we are, gonna, we are also going to go back to screen sharing so I can go over our segment called The Shot List. These are views you can use to pick the winning call sheet. There are three parts to The Shot List, and we'll start with the first as I switch over to screen share for our viewers. The first part's called the A-list, and the A-list this week, we're starting at the top. You've heard about a little movie coming out from a little franchise uh, known as Harry Potter that is sure to be popular this week, and we are talking Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And one of the, and the actor you're going to want to add to your call sheet this week at 38900 which is essentially almost 40% of your budget, is Eddie Redmayne. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is on, in wide release. It is on 4,000 screens. It is projected to earn upwards of $87 million this weekend. You're going to have to have it. You're going to have to have it in headliner fashion because uh, if my math is – so ballpark math, you're probably going to get about – about 115, 120 points per se of the headliner on that movie if it does perform up to expectations. So you're going to need one uh, from Fantastic Beasts. And if you're going to spend that much money, you might as well get yourself a headliner. Uh, my mom always used to say, if you're going to spend a lot of money, dra hey, draft mom, if you're going to spend a lot of money, you might as well get what you want. I want me a headliner. And in and for those who and those who follow the podcast uh, religiously, we just had a podcast out yesterday with uh, our boy Jay Devlin, practically our in-house pro. He loves talking over the strategy cinema draft. We love chopping it up and discussing where we think the value is going to be in any given week. And he and we kind of stumbled upon the, our second A list uh, actor this week, which I mean, and I, I, and I'm, look, I made, I make these values. I'm the algorithm, you know, we're a startup. We, have, we don't have any fancy algorithms like DraftKings or FanDuel or whatever, but I make the salaries and I was kind of blown away, uh, about how I undervalued this film. Uh, and this is, uh, Billy Lynn's long walk. Oh, no, let's say long walk home. No, sorry. The film was called Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. It's about, uh, I guess a guy who comes back from Iraq, he's seen some shit and basically he's being prayed around at the Super Bowl and he has to do like a color guard ceremony or whatever. And throughout the entire time, he has these extended flashbacks of, of his life and time in, in 
I mean, it was Afghanistan. Anyway, he was over in the war. Uh, and I think it was the Iraq war. And anyways, it's, um, it, it's been getting a lot of buzz. It had a ridiculous, you know, per screen average last weekend. I think it, it was on like two screens. And I think it did like what half a million or something. It was just, it was like, I think it was in either New York or LA or both. Yeah. Two screens, 57,000 per screen. So 114,000 each of, of course it's not sustainable when you build it out, but it's going to jump to 1100 screens this week. It's also going to be an, an IMAX and it's going to use something called a high frame rate. I think so where, whereas we'd see most films and stuff in either 24 or 30 frames per second, I think they're going for something like 48 or 60. Anyways, it's another way to charge the extra money. And to be honest with you, I'm curious. I want to see what this thing looks like. I'm probably going to pay it. I'm probably going to go see it in IMAX, the most expensive, highest rated format possible, just to check it out, just see what all the hype is about. I like being in on the cultural conversation. Anyways, uh, Billy Lynn's long walk, uh, long halftime walk. Uh, I wasn't sure what it was going to do. It's going to be a limited release, so it's only going to be on 1,100 screens. And a headliner for Vin Diesel, the, the cheaper the two, Kristen Stewart's the other headliner, uh, is 9,800. And, you know, pop conventional theory might be you might just want to stack this up because there have been rumors that it might be projected to – to earn as much as 11 million on its opening weekend on just 1100 screens because of the hype, because of the IMAX tickets, IMAX always gooses up the box office and, you know, and curiosity seekers like myself who want to see what this high frame rate thing is all about, you know, so I'm going to probably end up paying $25 for a damn ticket just for myself. No date. I'm single. No date it's for me. $25 for a single ticket. It's heresy. But that's where we're at right now. Uh, so yeah, so to definitely check those two actors out: Eddie Redmayne, Fantastic Beasts, Vin Diesel, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. You're probably gonna want, you know, one or both of those actors on your winning call sheet to win that dough. All right, co-starring is the next part of the, of the shot list, and those and these are some values you may want to look out for this weekend. And I'm going back to the well, damn it! I'm going back to Trolls. Trolls has performed fantastically, fantastically. It only had a 25% drop last weekend. Look at this. This is crazy. Trolls, Trolls took in 40, another 40, another 34 million last weekend. Less, just, uh, just a hair under 25% drop, which is pretty much unheard of. Picked up six screens. Is gross 93 million in two weeks. This is the hidden value right here this weekend. Uh, getting get you some Anna Kendrick on trolls. Uh, I believe she's at 14,900. Um, if there is a scenario where you can fade uh, Fantastic Beasts, and I'm not sure you can really this weekend, um, I would probably stock up on trolls and Billy Lynn's long halftime walk or give it a good shot. Another value you want to look out for, this is a play that not too many people may be on this week, only because it will be in this third week. You think it will, I mean, even, or, let's play a game real quick. Even if Troll, let's say Trolls finally has like a big hit. Let's say it, it loses, you know, 50% of its box office. I think it actually be more like 25% maybe, like it might still come in at, at around 25 million this week. But let's just say it, it drops down to like, 18 million, 17, 18 million, right? <clears throat> I mean, even at a headliner, you're still talking about almost 30 points for, for, you know, for about half the price of one Fantastic Beasts actor. So I don't know. You might want to look into Trolls. It's a play I'm not sure too many people will be on this week because not enough people listen to this podcast. Y'all need to be listening to this podcast. Y'all need to be listening to the shot list. Anyways, um, another actor you want to take a look at is, 
is, of course, Moonlight, old reliable. We, uh, we're not quite sure yet what the we're not quite sure yet what the screen count's going to be, but I would say get you some Naomi Harris from Moonlight. She's a headliner. She's 8,400. Uh, I'm guessing it might be on 400 screens. It's currently on 176. They've been rolling this out pretty smartly. Uh, it gained 1.2 million, 1.3 million last weekend, so at the platform release level, which is one point per 100,000 box office gross. Uh, if you get a similar repeat performance of another 1.3 or 1.5 million on more screens, you're looking at 15 points for a pretty value-centric price of 8,400. And the last part of the shot list is what I call the cutting room floor. This is basically where I say, skip these losers. And the big loser is Inferno. Skip all them actors, even at 6,800 for your cheapest headliner, Felicity Jones, or 6,000 in Ida Darvish, or sorry, Slim Kesri down here uh, for your lowest price Inferno actor. Just skip all Inferno despite its cheap price. It's got no traction, no legs. Uh, I'll be surprised. It might. It should drop down to the limited release range because right now it's in 2,656 screens. I can't imagine they're going to keep it on for much longer at that wider release. More films are coming in this week. They're probably going to kick it down to an estimated 1,400 screens. So just skip it. It's not worth your time. And I hate to say it, all shut-in. Shut-in is stuck. Shut-in only made... 3 million on less than on two on 2058 screens on a paltry $1756 per screen average it's going nowhere fast and because of the way most of these movie contracts work with with uh, with movie theaters big releases wide releases what have you are contractually locked to into those theaters for two consecutive weeks. <clears throat> so I don't expect any dip <clears throat> in, in the amount of theaters it'll be in th this week. It'll be contractually bound to those 20, 28, those 2058 screens. <clears throat> so with at that wide release, with that little return, I mean, I'd be shocked if it gets more than, than you know, $2 million this week. And so you're only looking at two points of wide release, even, even as a punt play. 5,800 is the cheapest shut-in actor, 6,200 for Oliver Platt, and 6,500 for Naomi Watts, respectively, as headliners. It's not worth it. You're not getting your, your bang for your buck. So skip all those losers, all right? <clears throat> and, of course, I'm curious. What movies do you always want to see? Email us. Tweet at us. Uh, email us at podcast.cinemadraft at gmail.com. Let us know what movies you're interested in seeing. Or tweet at us, at PlayCinemaDraft on Twitter. Let, highlight us. Let us know what you're excited to see. We're interested. We'll probably run another poll. We had a poll going on last week. This was kind of cool. We had a poll going on last week where where uh, if you pin to our uh, pin, pin to our, our homepage and basically wanted to find out what <clears throat> and basically the, the poll was cinema drafters are divided. Will alien invasion flick arrival beat soft projections and make more than 25 million this week or less? And 60% of people said less <clears throat> 25. And guess what everybody? y'all were right. <clears throat> it made only 24.1 but we got close. And it was my prop bets with Jay last week. I believe he uh, we made a we made a prop bet for uh, for whether uh, I thought Arrival would make twenty five million or more. He thought it'd go under. He was correct, actually. Uh, and then also we made another one where he thought Almost Christmas would surpass Arrival. I knew that shit wasn't happening. Almost Christmas did not. It only made fifteen million. 
And that's because almost Christmas kind of sucks. So we're going to put up another poll this week. Actually, you know what? We're going to put up another poll. After I finish this, I'm going to put up a poll for you guys. Uh, and, and the poll will be the over-under this week. And this week, it's going to be Fantastic Beasts. Over-under. 90 million this week. Do you think it's going to make more than 90? Do you, or do you think it's going to make under 90? I'm thinking it's going to make over 90 because, I, I mean, I'm excited about Fantastic Beasts. I'm not a Harry Potter guy. I tapped out after, like, the third Harry Potter film. It was, it was just too... I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. You know, I'm sure the books are excellent. And when I have time someday when I'm you know, retired to read again, I'll check it out. But, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I wasn't a fan, a big fan of the movies after a while. But Fantastic Beasts looks very interesting. It's new. It's a prequel. You can kind of get it on the ground floor. I don't think there are any real books out there for it or anything. So I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic Beasts. I'm actually going to check it out. Once again, another pricey-ass ticket with the D-Box, with the moving seats and all that good stuff. Um, and so, and so that'll be my prop bet. So that, that'll be our prop bet with, with Jay. We'll see. We'll do the 90 million over under. I'll post a poll to Twitter right after this. Y'all can tell me what you think, <clears throat> whether it's going to make 90 million or more this weekend. And that will be our poll for the week. All right. And that's pretty much it, everybody. Where can you find Cinema Draft? Go to our homepage, cinemadraft.co, and sign up for the free beta. We are free to play. We are free to play, and you can win money. We are free, free, free. I don't know how much more I can tell you guys that this sucker is gratis. All right? Also, follow us on Twitter, at Play Cinema Draft. Facebook, Cinema Draft. Instagram, at Play Cinema Draft. Medium, slash, at Cinema Draft. And Pinterest, yes, we have a Pinterest. Uh, Cinema Draft is our Pinterest account. Also, subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Google Music, SoundCloud, or wherever is your favorite podcasting outlet. We are live this week with almost $200 in prizes this weekend. Go to cinemadraft.co, tell your friends, tell a friend to tell a friend. Love to see you guys in there. All of our contests update their theater counts at 6 p.m. Thursday. This is very key, very crucial, because we have this issue every week. But This is the way the game is played. Because the theater counts are fluid, because they change throughout the week, because we don't always know exactly what the counts are going to be, at some point we have to lock them in. Uh, before the game starts, <clears throat> and so our so our theater so our theater counts lock at 6 p.m. on 6 p.m. Pacific on Thursday. So whatever those theater counts are at 6 p.m. Pacific on Thursday, that's what it's going to be for the game. So double check your call sheets. Please recheck your call sheets because after they're updated, then then a lot of times uh, movies uh, actors for their, from their movies change release types. So what was normally so what you thought was going to be limited is actually platform. What you thought was limited is going to be wide release. Like in the case of Shut In last week, all that sort of stuff. So please, please, please double check your call sheets after 6 p.m. Pacific time on Thursday, and then after that the game runs at 10 p.m. Pacific time. I guess that's 1 a.m. Eastern time for those on the East Coast. Uh, we are offering, I believe, we have $40 to first this week. And we are in the feature presentation, which is our main you know, tournament, our most popular tournament. Make sure you play that in all five of our contests because these games are totally free to play. The results will be posted uh, short, uh, probably by 4 p.m. Pacific time on Mondays. And that is how the game is run. And I'd like to thank you so much for sticking with me for another solo pod, a now not so somber pod. Thank you for helping me, you know, get through. We we potted through it, everyone. We potted through America. We're gonna be all right. We had we found five cool election movies that we like. We're gonna rewatch, get us through these tough times. We got some decent strategies through the shot 
to the shot list. <clears throat> and make sure you look out for our other podcasts throughout the week. We generally tend to do one Friday mornings, uh, hopefully with Jay Devlin with his breakdown of the call sheets. And then also Monday evening after the results have posted to do some call sheet review. So Jeff, definitely check us out. Appreciate your time and your support. Thanks for listening. Tell some people, get in the game, and let's do this. And we are out of here. <laughs>